This morning is Mother's Day. It is May 14th, Sunday morning, and I am happy to be in the house of the Lord. Our Tell them what it is. I'm going to read to you the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother as the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live long, that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. And what commandment was that? The fifth. Amen. Go sit down, baby. Message this morning is Mother Israel. How many of you are mothers in here? Raise your hand if you're a mother. One, two, three, four, and a bunch are out there. How many want to be mothers? Judah, do you want to be a mother? All right, mothers, we have something for you here. If you're a mother, come on up here. I've got something for you. Mothers deserve to be honored on Mother's Day. Amen. Here we go. Roses with no thorns. How about that? Guns and roses was wrong. <laughs> there you go. All right. Now, who in here is grandmother? <laughs> I'm going to come to you this time. <laughs> when we're getting to the next generation, we deserve two roses. Something else has become very clear to me this morning. We need more mothers in the church or it's empty on Mother's Day. I think everybody went to go be in their mother's church. <laughs> hey guys, I love y'all. Isn't this good? Isn't life good? Are you guys, do you call your mothers this morning? Yes? No? <laughs> Judah didn't have to call us mother. Okay, well we're going to open the Word. Where do you think we're going to open to? Genesis. No, we're going to go to Genesis 2. So turn with me to Genesis 2. I want to read you something that you've heard before. Move on. This will be a non-traditional Mother's Day message. Does that surprise you for me? I didn't think that it would. All right, they're already running for the doors, pastors included. <laughs> In Genesis 2, we see, starting in verse 15, 18, starting in verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. The Lord goes through a long extended process of having Adam name animals, hoping that Adam will get the picture that God wants to do something for him, wants to create for him a mate. I want you to notice that it was God's idea that it's not good for man to be alone. I tell you that for a few reasons. One is, it's good when a man finds a wife. And the purpose for men finding wives is that they would establish a new entity under heaven that they would produce godly offspring and advance God's purposes on earth. But even if we're not talking about a wife here this morning, this is just a sidebar, if you will, it's not good for man to be alone, period. Man was not made for seclusion. Man was made for inclusion. You were designed by God for a specific purpose, to plug into and relate to a community of believers worldwide. Don't allow yourself to be isolated, not in any situation, not ever. Whether you're on the mission field in Africa all alone or not, you have to find a way to fellowship with people. In centuries past, they had to write letters. Today, you can email, you can video conference, you can pick up a telephone. But saints, we're not meant to be isolated and alone. Every story of demonic activity in the Bible, every single one, happened when people were isolated and alone. It's because this is not what man was meant for. Now, why might I be telling you that in church this morning? I want you to plug into each other's lives. I want you to get to know each other. I want to get beyond the surface relationships where you just know each other's names and kids. Get intimately involved with each other's lives. Do whatever it takes. And do that wherever you go. In this church, I would very much like for the idea of it's personal, that feeling, oh, I can't say this, I can't do that, it's not proper, it's personal, to fade to the background. Because in Christ, we have all things in common. We bear one another's burdens. We need to build relationships that go deeper. Not good for man to be alone. In Genesis 3, we see the words given to Eve. You will be the mother of all of the living. Another way to translate it is you will be the mother of the living one. And most Mother's Days, I preach about 
Eve, the mother of the living, and how God chose for salvation to enter the world through a woman. Isn't that powerful? Isn't that good? I thought about preaching that again this morning, but I just couldn't do it. As we move on from Genesis 3, where we see man has a break with God, right? little hiccup in his giddy-up. He's been walking with God in the garden in the morning, doing very, very well, and sin has entered the picture. And all of a sudden, for the first time, there's separation. Isn't it unique that in Genesis 3 you see separation between man and God because of sin? And in Genesis 4, for the very first time in human history, you see separation between man and man? See, I want you to get this. When Cain killed Abel because of the... the when this happened, when there was separation between these two human beings, it's because there was a separation between man and God. Everything that has ever happened that was bad in the world came from one place, when man started to be alienated from God's presence. When you have long-lasting discord in your life with someone, you need to be very, very careful that you have not built a ceiling between you and God by building walls between you and your neighbor. The, Many times our relationships with our friends and family are a reflection of what's going in our heart towards God. Because the Word says if you don't show mercy, you won't be shown mercy. The Word says that love always trusts, always protects all of those things, doesn't it? So what are we doing when we withhold those things? We're not acting as God had intended. I bring all of those things up to say the one person on the planet, the very only person. When everybody else walks out, there's somebody you can count on loving you. It's your mother. I've been in some low places in my life. Had some things that I have done and things that have been done to me that were not pleasant. That I knew, even if she was cross with me, that my mother loved me. In fact, the commandments teach us, why Judah read it this morning, for children to honor their father and mother, Right? You see no commandment, not anywhere in the Word that I've been able to find, that say mothers love your children. Isn't it interesting? You can look at a society's laws and tell what they have problems with. You can look at your interaction with the law and tell what you've had a problem with. In my teenage years, I liked to drive too fast. That had completely faded out of my life. What happens when you drive too fast? You get tickets. You're condemned as a lawbreaker. You pay a penalty, right? Well, the reason that Israel was given a law that said honor your father and mother was because mankind had to be taught to honor their mother and father. That was something that didn't come natural. You didn't have to be taught to love your children, though. Love flows naturally downhill from the perfect father above. It naturally flows from a mother to a child. It happens without much thought. Most mothers everywhere will love their children without having to be taught how to do that. But all children have to be taught to reciprocate that love. Isn't that amazing? Men, women, think about your mothers today. That's a powerful thing. In Genesis 9, we see prophecies. They were given to Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Y'all remember these prophecies? Let's turn there. Let's read them real quick. I want to talk to you about this tent of Shem. Then we're going to look at a couple of mothers in the Bible. In Genesis 9, starting in verse 24, when Noah awoke from wine, and found out what his youngest son had done to him. He said, Cursed be Canaan. The lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend the territory of Japheth, and may Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Cain be his slave. That's such a rich, deep text. It's a prophecy over all humanity. Eight people got off of an ark. Noah, Ham, Shem, Japheth, and their wives. And out of all the people that were on the earth, sons, prophecies were given about what would happen to their lineage. This was a prophecy that had some bearing in the natural, actually carried out in the natural, and had some bearing in the spiritual. Even personally, it does. Many people can look at Ham, Shem, and Japheth and see three parts of a human being. Ham being the flesh, cursed, supposed to be in subjection to Japheth and Shem. Shem being the spirit, the part of you that is blessed, that knows who God is. Japheth being your mind, will, and emotions that is supposed to come into the tents of Shem. I've taught on this many times, and I know most of you know it. Another way to look at it is the kinds of people on the earth. That there would be those who were given special revelation of God. Those who descended from Shem. 
There would be those who would come and dwell in Shem's special revelation, their blessing. That would be Japheth. And there would be those that would be forced to labor in a millennial reign. Those would be Canaan. However you look at that, there was one tent that was blessed. One tent everybody was supposed to get in. And that was Shem's. As we look in the Word, we see some special things happening. We're going to take some of our text today from Genesis 24. I want to read to you about a tent. Is that okay if you just turn to the right? Y'all will bear with me? told you it wouldn't be a traditional Mother's Day message. Our title this morning is Mother Israel, by the way. Israel was a man. Hard to think of that as a woman. But God speaks of Israel, the nation, as a woman, over and over, laboring to give birth to something, struggling, travailing. Why do you love your mother? Well, if for no other reason, she was somebody who labored to bring you into this world. I've been a father in a delivery room. It's not very hard. Watched my wife give birth to our last child with absolutely no pain medicine. That was a unique experience. It's amazing what women go through. There should be an innate love and respect because of all of the hard work that mothers go through in raising children. You know, it's not natural for a young lady to like dirty things, is it? You know? Things under rocks, nasty things, things that stink or smell. It's not natural for anybody to like it, but even more so to picture my daughter Abigail in a pink dress with a bow in her hair playing with something filthy, is it? And yet when she grows into maturity and has children of her own, she'll take great delight in changing the nastiest of diapers. Isn't that amazing? God would have to do a really special work in someone's heart to cause them to look with joy upon something that is as dirty as taking care of children. In fact, as a young man, I watched other people taking care of kids. And I thought, oh my goodness. Their noses run. Their diapers get full. Children are nasty creatures. Then the most amazing thing happens when you have your own. You're able to overlook all of their dirtiness, all of their nastiness, and see something good. You see them for what they can become. Isn't that amazing? mother can look at a baby, hold it in her arms, and see a president, see a preacher, see a prophet. That's just like God. He overlooks all of your leprosy and says He's willing to make you clean. He sees you for what you can be and not what you are. I love that. Well, in Genesis 24, we see something said about a tent. Just kind of an odd statement made about a tent. You all with me in Genesis 24? I'm still trying to find it. It's hiding from me in my Bible. <laughs> in Genesis 24, we see around verse 62. Now Isaac had come from Beer Leroy, for he was living in the Negev. He went out to a field one evening to meditate, and as he looked up, he saw camels approaching. Rebekah also looked up and saw Isaac. Loved at first sight. She got down from her camel and asked the servant, Who is that man in the field coming to meet us? He is my master, the servant answered. By the way, does anybody remember what the servant's name is? Eleazar, God the Comforter. We have the promised son looking into the distance, seeing a woman named Rebecca, whose name means irresistible. When their eyes meet, the woman asks, Who is that in the distance? And the man whose name means Holy Spirit says, That's the master. The Holy Spirit's function on the earth to show you who Jesus is. He is my master, the servant answered. So she took her veil and covered herself. Then the servant told Isaac all that he had done. Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother and he married Rebekah. So she became his wife and he loved her and Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. There was a tent that would dwell in Shem a tent that was a teaching, a culture, a way of life. For the Jew, it was taught by the father, but passed down by the mother. This is because the father would be the priest in his home. He would set the godly example. He would learn the holy writ of God. But the wife would impress it upon the children. The father had interaction with the children daily, but who had more interaction with the children? The mother, and it's the same way today. When people look at me and they say, Eric, your children are good. I can't do anything but praise my wife because for every hour I've spent with them, she spent four. Isn't that amazing? God intended it to be this way. Isaac brought Rebekah into his mother's tent. You know what's interesting about this? Rebekah's been dead for some time. Not Rebekah. Sarah's been dead for some time. Him bringing 
his new wife into his mother's tent was bringing her into a way of life that he had learned from his mother. It was the tent of Shem. It was the place where God's blessing would dwell. All of mankind was told, you will either get in the tent with Shem or you will be forced to slavery. Rebecca takes up this very attitude. She hears a promise given over her two sons. You remember who Rebecca gave birth to? Come on, saints. Who did Rebecca give birth to? Jacob and Esau. There was a prophecy given over them. It said, there's two nations in your womb. The older will serve the younger. That woman heard that. And I want you to hear what she does in Genesis 27. Slip a page. She had learned from Sarah. By the way, in Sarah's lifetime, she had some contentions with one of Abraham's intimate acquaintances. Some people would say she was a hag. She gave birth to Ishmael. God blessed Hagar and He blessed Ishmael. But who was in fierce contention with Hagar? Sarah. Why? What will make a woman fight? What's one of the only things that will get a woman to rise in anger, take up arms and take her stand? She felt as if her son would be threatened. She was promised a son from her own body. Somebody named Isaac. She called him laughter because she laughed with joy and maybe a hint of disbelief when he was born. And now there was a rival in her house, a son of another woman, a son not of the promise. And she said, you better get that bond woman out of my house. And Abraham listened to her, didn't he? God even told Abraham to listen to her. Well, Rebecca has entered into that spirit. She's entered into that tent, the tent of Sarah, one that will fight for her children, one that sees the promises of God as something that is real, something to strive for, something to hope for. Isaac brought Rebekah into his mother's tent and listened to how Rebekah responds when she's thinking about her children. Are you in the 27th chapter of Genesis? In the 27th chapter of Genesis, starting around verse 11, Jacob said to his Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, but my brother Esau... I guess I better back up further. Go to verse 5. Now Rebekah was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. When Esau left for the open country to hunt for game and bring it back, Rebekah said to her son, Look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, Bring me some game and prepare some tasty food to eat, so that I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats so I can prepare some tasty food for your father, just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. What is Rebecca encouraging her son Jacob to do? Cheat! That doesn't sound like a good thing, does it? I've personally witnessed the parents of privileged children in private schools do whatever it takes to keep their children's perfect GPA. I've seen them beg and plead with teachers. I've seen them threaten the administration. I've seen them give large donations. Whatever they thought it would take to give their child an edge. This woman has heard the promise of God. There's two nations in your womb, but the older will serve the younger. She recognized that Jacob was God's pick. And that made Jacob her pick as well. I know as a mother you're not supposed to have favorites. But if you're going to have a favorite, it better be the one that God favors. She's encouraging her son to do something that's not quite right. But her intentions are good, aren't they? Watch what happens. Listen to the heart of a mother here. Jacob, verse 11. Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, But my brother Esau is a hairy man. <laughs> and I am a man with smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him. He would appear to be. He would be. <laughs> and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. His mother said to him, My son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say and go and get them for me. A mother's heart is willing that she would be cursed that her children would be blessed. Now her intentions may not have or actions may not have been 
what we would teach in Sunday school. I don't want anybody in here to go put on an outfit and try to trick their dad. But this mother wanted a blessing for her son. And although her actions may not have been perfect, her intentions certainly were. She says, son, I know you're worried about the consequence. Let all of the consequence fall on me. Just do what I tell you. The reason that you love your mothers this morning is because what they've done for you is a selfless thing. They put aside their hopes, their dreams, their visions so that they could raise a child. A child that many times would not respond with anything but cursing instead of blessing. How many of you were ever a teenager once that looked at your mother as if she was stupid? (laughs) I got at least one laugh out of that. How many of you ever thought, my mom is antiquated and just doesn't understand what I'm going through? And you forget about the hours that she went in sleep deprivation. You You forget about the times that she changed diapers and fed you before she ate. You say, well, my mom didn't do those things. Somebody did or you wouldn't be here. This woman was willing that a curse would fall on her, that her son would be blessed. You might even say that she lost all of her identity and who her son was. You ever heard a young mother say, I just don't know who I am. I'm married to this guy and all I do is raise these kids. All I do is change diapers and feet. What a high calling that is. They lose themselves in their children because their children are what God put them on the earth for. Isn't that beautiful? Ah, It's beautiful if you're the child. It's very hard if you're the mother. She was willing that a curse would fall on her. Isaiah 66 is where we're going next. And I want to tell you ahead of time so you'll get a hint as to what I'm talking about. Israel is a mother to us. The reason that you love your mother is because she put your needs, at least at some place in her life, before her own. The reason that you love your mother is even when her actions were not perfectly godly towards you. Her intentions always were. Israel is spoken of a mother. Somebody who would be willing to receive a curse that you might receive something that was good. Somebody that was willing to struggle and travail that you might receive something that was a blessing. In Isaiah 66, we read about Israel spoken of figuratively as the mother. Starting in verse... Hear that roar from the city. Hear that noise from the people. It is the sound of the Lord repaying His enemies for all they deserve. Before she goes into labor, she gives birth. Before the pains come upon her, she delivers a son. Who has ever heard of such a thing? Who has ever seen such things? Can a country be born in a day? Or a nation be brought forth in a moment? Yet no sooner is Zion in labor than she gives birth to her children. Do I bring to the moment of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord? Do I close up the womb when I bring to delivery, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her. All you who love her, rejoice greatly with her. All you who mourn over her, for you will nurse and be satisfied. At her comforting breast you will drink deeply and delight in her overflowing abundance. For this is what the Lord says. Before I read that, think, my God, what strange imagery. We're not Jews here this morning. Why would you speak about it like this? You tell me the truth. When Paul says he nourished the Corinthian church with spiritual milk and that it was time to crave meat. When the Bible speaks about the blessing that was given to Abraham, being given to Gentiles. Are you not nourishing upon Israel as if she were a mother? Did she not labor to bring forth salvation to the earth? At one point in Isaiah, you can hear Israel's cry. Struggled, I labored, and I gave birth to nothing. Israel looked like a failure, and Romans speaks about that. A great stumbling in Israel. But were her intentions right? That's the question. Look what God says will happen. Verse 12. For this is what the Lord says, I will extend peace to her like a river and the wealth of nations like a flooding stream. You will nurse and be carried on her arm and dandled on her knees. As a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you, and you will be comforted over Jerusalem. When you see this, your heart will rejoice and you will flourish like grass. 
The hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants, but his fury will be shown to his foes. See, the Lord is coming with fire. His chariots are like a whirlwind. He will bring down his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For with fire and with sword, the Lord will execute judgment upon all men and many will see or many will be those slain by the Lord. At the same time, the Lord comforts Israel. There's great judgment on the earth. I read you Isaiah 66 to introduce an idea to you. To introduce the idea that just as you love your mother for travailing for you, for loving you maybe when nobody else did, for serving you, there is a debt that we owe the nation of Israel. They brought to us the Word of God. They brought to us every prophet that is recorded in the Word. You realize that? They brought to us the apostles who gave us the Word. Her actions have not always been right. There are some great blunders in her history, but her intention was to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. As we look at this, you are forced to ask, what happened? What went wrong? And I found the answer in the giving of the law. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 9. Is it all right if we don't have a normal Mother's Day message this morning? <laughs> Matt wants me to change the title to Your Mama. <laughs> in Deuteronomy 9, starting in verse 7, it says, Remember this, and never forget how you provoked the Lord your God to anger in the desert. From the day you left Egypt until you arrived here, you have been rebellious against the Lord. At Horeb you aroused the Lord's anger so that He was angry enough to destroy you. When I went up on the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord had made with you, I stayed on the mountain forty days and forty nights. I ate no bread and drank no water. The Lord gave me two stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God. On them were all the commandments the Lord proclaimed to you on the mountain out of the fire on the day of the assembly. At the end of the forty days and nights, the Lord gave me the two stone tablets, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord told me, Go down from here at once, because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have turned away quickly from what I commanded them and have made a cast idol for themselves. And the Lord said to me, I have seen this people, and they are stiff-necked people indeed. Let me alone, so that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make you into a nation stronger and more numerous than they. So I turned and went down from the mountain while it was ablaze with fire, and the two tablets of the covenant were in my hands. When I looked, I saw that you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made for yourselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. You turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord commanded you. So I took the two tablets and threw them out of my hands, breaking them to pieces before your eyes. So many times when we think about Israel, we think about their failures. You ever met a truly bitter person? I mean, somebody that is angry at the world? They almost always have a problem with one or both of their parents. Your parents are put in your life as an extension of God's authority on earth. And when you find a human being that has truly a sour disposition, you find a problem with the relationship with mom or dad. Well, Israel had a problem. The problem was that the day the law was given, the tablets that it was written on were broken to pieces. It symbolized the way that they broke the commands that God gave them. As I read this and I began to reflect on it, I started thinking about all of the times in my life that I had focused on my mother's failures. The times that I thought she should have done this and instead she had done this. You ever met anybody like that? All they can talk about is what somebody else did wrong in their life. They forget about the diapers that were changed. They forget about the love that was given. And they concentrate on the one birthday when mom didn't do what they thought they should have done. At times we treat Israel like this. When we look at Israel and all we see is a people who were rebellious and stiff-necked, when all we see are a people who failed God, we forget about the rest of the story. 
The rest of the story starts in the 10th chapter. I want to read you this. Is that all right with you? At that time, the Lord said to me, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones. God's not the God of the one chance only. He doesn't give up on you the first time you fail Him. If He did, none of us would be standing here. You know who else didn't give up on you the first time you didn't do something right? Your mother. Think about how patient a mother has to be. One of the first things children do when you're trying to feed them is spit food back at you, refuse to open their mouth, bite the spoon, throw their bottles on the floor. Does mom hold back and palm that child across the face? That's why God has mothers raise the children. At that time, the Lord said to me, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones and come up to me on the mountain. Also, make a wooden chest. I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Then you are to put them in a chest. So I made the ark out of acacia wood and chiseled it on two stone tablets like the first ones. And I went up on the mountain with the two tablets in my hands. The Lord wrote on these tablets what He had written before. The Ten Commandments He had proclaimed to you on the mountain out of the fire on the day of the assembly. And the Lord gave them to me. Then I came back down the mountain and put the tablets in the ark I had made as the Lord commanded me. And they are there now. The first commandments, the first set of ten that were inscribed on stone by the finger of God that are spoken of as broken by the people, thrown down by Moses are never spoken of again in the Word. From here on out, what they carry in the ark, and you learned last week about the ark, it's called the ark of the covenant. It's called the ark of God. And it's called the ark of the testimony. Testimony of what? The testimony of God's righteousness, God's character, the testimony that God gave man. And what was carried in that ark? But the first thing that we see that was put there was not broken commandments, but commandments that were wholly kept. They were completely intact. This would symbolize something. There would later come a man who the law of God would be perfectly in. He would be an ark for God. God's glory would be carried on the shoulders of men and displayed for all the nations to see. The problem with the first set was that it was something that was external, something merely to be looked at. But the second set was placed inside. This would foreshadow what happens with Mother Israel. There would be a day she was given the law eternally as regulation simply to be followed, broken pieces ever before her eyes. But it would be followed by a day where this law would be inscribed upon her heart, where it would be ingested, where it would simply be a part of who she was. It's a day that Ezekiel 36 speaks of and that we long for. What else was in this ark? I had a conversation with some friends last night about what was in the ark. Exodus teaches us in Exodus 16, 31-34, that there was a golden jar of manna in this ark. It was a, a jar that was made out of gold and manna was put in it. Aaron's staff that budded was also in this ark. The testimony of God on the earth being carried by His people, being carried by the nation of Israel, didn't only have the law in it. It also had manna, and it had a staff that budded. Number 17.10 teaches us that. Hebrews 9.4 says all three of these things were in the ark during Moses' day. In other words, the testimony of God was not solely the law of God. It was not solely these things written in stone on tablets. It was also something else. Deuteronomy teaches us. In Deuteronomy 8.3, why don't we go ahead and turn there since you're already close to it. In Deuteronomy 8.3, The Word tells us why manna was given. I want you to think about what was in this testimony of the ark. Verse 2, 8-2. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you, to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep His commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. 
Those of you that are firmly grounded in the New Testament have read those words before. They appear in Luke and they appear in Matthew. Jesus spoke them to somebody. He spoke them to His adversary when He was describing the way that He was to live as opposed to the way the devil was trying to get Him to live. In the ark of God, not only was there the law, but there was a symbol that showed man the way that he was to live as dependent upon the Word of God as if it were food. How often did the manna fall? Y'all can speak to me. I'll cry and run out if you don't. Every day, six days a week, that's right. Six days a week for 40 years, right? This was to teach them something. The testimony that they were carrying in the ark taught them that in addition to the law, you had to hear from God every day that He would show you the way that you were to live, that you were to hunger for this day in and day out, that if you tried to keep yesterday's instruction for today, it would turn to maggots. It's not enough simply to inscribe rules on this wall for you to follow. Yesterday's rules may not work today because our revelation is changing, it's growing, it's being built upon. Have you noticed that when we have this way and we have this truth in the ark, we're building a testimony? There was one other thing in the ark, and it was Aaron's staff that budded. This staff was a symbol that God had given. When Israel was perplexed and didn't know which priesthood to follow, what to do? Korah says that they're of God. Aaron says that he's of God. How do we know who to follow? God said, I want you to take the staves of the leaders of the tribes of Israel. I want you to put them before my presence and watch and see what happens. One staff began to sprout. Not only did it begin to sprout, but it bore fruit. This was to teach Israel that there would be one priest with authority. There would be one priest who had the power of life in his hands. Hebrews teaches us that Jesus was declared to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek by the power of an indestructible life. This was a testimony that Israel carried around. They carried around with them the way that they should live, the truth that they should live in, and the life that they were supposed to get from it. Well, what happened? You ever seen somebody start well and not finish well? A popular parable that we all like. The parable of the Good Samaritan. The guy is on the right road. There's a road that went from Jericho that symbolized the world right into Jerusalem that symbolized the kingdom of God. He was on the right road, but he was headed the wrong direction. He started out in the right way at some point and then began sliding backwards. And what happened to him? God provided an obstacle to slow him down. A beating. A chance to get it right. Have you ever heard that Paul wrote in Romans that Israel has experienced a stumbling, a hardening, a time of hardship, but it gives the nation an opportunity to get it right? Your mother didn't throw you away. We don't want to throw away Israel because we've seen a stumbling, a hardening. In fact, we read in 1 Kings 8 9 that by the time Solomon dedicated this ark that had the way in it, had the truth in it, it had the life in it, it had the jar of manna, it had the Ten Commandments, and it had the staff that budded. By the time Solomon dedicated it in the temple, it says the only thing that remained in the ark was the truth. This is really the problem that happened in Israel. They had the true word from God but lost the way in which it was to be walked. They had the true word that was from God but lost the life that was to result from it. Strange statement that most people don't understand. In Romans 7, Paul says the law was actually intended to bring life. You'll notice that skipped over in almost every commentary. How did that which was good become something bad then? Somewhere along the way, Israel retained the truth but lost the way they were to live it. They lost the life that they were to receive from it. But Israel was travailing. They were laboring, just like your mother labored for you, for a son. Somebody who would be born, who would restore the way. They would restore the truth. He would restore life by atoning for the curse that had fallen on Israel and restoring the way and the life that was missing. When you look at the truth, the law, Deuteronomy 4.6 says something about it. Go ahead and turn there.
Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all of these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is wise and an understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I'm setting before you today? Deuteronomy 5.29 says that God gave this law to incline Israel's hearts towards Him. That His desire was that their hearts would begin to lean or slant towards Him. Now I want you to hear this. I know we are having a technical message this morning. Ten times in the book of Deuteronomy. Not once, not twice, but ten times in the book of Deuteronomy. It says that the law was given that it would go well with the people and that they would prosper. I heard most of my Christian life that the law was given as a restraint. It was given to bind up. It was given for all of these reasons to point out sin. And all of those things are true. That happened. But ten times the book of Deuteronomy says it was given that it would go well with them. It just so happens that what Israel needed was somebody to restore to them something. Turn with me to John 14. John 14, verse 6, Jesus answered, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know Him and have seen Him. What Israel was missing, what had been stripped out of Israel, was not the truth. Salvation was from the Jews. The truth was harbored by the Jews. It was protected. It was written on scrolls and hidden in the hearts of the people. What they had lost was the way to apply it. They had lost the life that was supposed to come from it. But they gave birth to a promised son. This relates specially to me. When my mother was a little girl, the truth was hidden away in her heart. But because of family circumstances and surrounding and the hardships that come in life, she would lost the way to walk out that truth. She didn't have the life or the fruit that was supposed to come from it. But there was a desire in her, a yearning, just like Rebecca had for her son, Jacob. My mother was willing to leave her family, leave her city, just like Abraham, to go to a new place, always looking for a new start, trying to begin again, trying to rediscover what had been lost. I can understand this stumbling that happens in people's lives. I've started out many times myself in the right direction and lost my way. But God never leaves us there. Because of the labor, because of the travailing, because of the hard work, I'm the first fruits of my mother's salvation. My mother, one of the first in the family to cry out and yearn for God in a real way. And it's bearing fruit in my life. When I think about Mother Israel this morning, rather than thinking about her failures, the law that was broken, without thinking about the civil war, some people will blame their lives on their parents' divorce. Did you know Israel had more than one divorce? I think about the truth that she held in her heart until God would reveal the way and produce the life. The proper view of the law. Have you ever heard that it was said, blood is poured on the mercy seat. God enthroned above the cherubim would look down and instead of seeing broken law, He would see the blood of Christ. Have you ever heard that? I've taught that many times. You know what? The law that was in the ark was not broken. If God had wanted that, He'd have scraped up all those broken pieces that Moses threw on the ground and He'd put them in the ark. The testimony would have been the people broke the law. That was not the testimony. The testimony would be that there was a day where the law would be ingested by the people. It would be written on their hearts and that the only way to view this law would be through the blood of Jesus. This is why Matthew 5 teaches us that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He said all of the statements that He said, like, you have heard it said... 
All the things he said, you have heard it said, were truth. He said, but I tell you. He showed them the way. They had the truth and he was showing them the way to walk it so that they might get the life that they were supposed to have from it. Turn with me to Ezekiel 36. I snuck in an Israel message on Mother's Day. Can you believe that? What is it about human beings that latch on to every negative thing in another human being? When I say Thomas, you think of doubt. Why is that? It's one moment in the man's life. One misstep. One stumbling along the way. And for 2,000 years now, he's been referred to as Doubting Thomas. Why is that? Thomas is the first person after the resurrection to say, my Lord and my God. Why do we not remember Thomas for that? Saints, this morning, whether you're thinking about your mother or you're thinking about Israel, look over the moments where she doubted and remember the moments that she clung to truth and tried to invest it in you. In Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 23, Actually, the latter part of 23, the last line. I hate to do that to you. It says, I will show myself holy through you before their eyes. Verse 24. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all of the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I gave your forefathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. During a time when Israel was finding out that the curse was falling upon them, they had not given the land its Sabbath rest They had not kept the promises of God faithfully. They had lost their way and were not receiving the light. Life, a promise came to them. There will be a day when this heart of stone that's in you will be removed. You'll be given a heart of flesh. The Holy Spirit will be upon you to move you to keep my law, keep my decrees so that I can come and be your God and you can be my people. Is that not a blessing that has fallen on us? Is that not a blessing that you didn't labor for at all as a Gentile and yet come to you? How many of your ancestors died prior to the Reformation? (laughs) Let's say prior to Christ. How many of your ancestors died to get a written copy of the Word to anybody? How many of your people were isolated, persecuted, and picked on for no other reason than they were in covenant with God? The answer for most of us is not many. Most of us were Gentiles, of people who were not looking for God but were found by Him. Meanwhile, Israel was laboring, travailing, trying to produce salvation because it was their calling. And it fell on us. On this Mother's Day, when you honor and you revere your mother and you are so thankful for all she did in your life, I can't help but think of the nation that birthed salvation for us. In fact, turn with me to Isaiah 62. We're going to close here in just a minute. Listen to this command. I have Isaiah 62, verse 6. I have posted watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They will never be silent, day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest and give Him no rest till He establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. The Lord has sworn by His right hand and by His mighty arm, never again will I give your grain as food to your enemies. Never again will foreigners drink the new wine for which you have toiled. 
But those who harvest it will eat it and praise the Lord. And those who gather the grapes will drink it in the courts of My sanctuary. Pass through. Pass through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up. Build up the highway. Remove the stones. Raise a banner for the nations. For the Lord has made proclamation to the ends of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your Savior comes. See, His reward is with Him and His recompense accompanies Him. They will be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you will be called sought after, the city no longer deserted. This morning you love your mother and I want you to. And you'll go to dinner with your mother or call her on the telephone or give her gifts. And you'll think about all she did for you when you were helpless and couldn't do it for yourself. And you hold in your hand a gift from Mother Israel. Every bit of it written by somebody descended from the man Jacob. And it's a gift for you. That makes us owe them a certain debt. Next time you read Romans 8, 9, 10, and 11, notice the pronouns. You won't be able to help but notice Paul has an admiration for his own people. In fact, like Rebecca, he's willing that a curse would come upon him for their benefit. In fact, you might even say upon Israel fell a curse for your benefit. See, the tent of Shem has suffered great harm and warfare to allow Japheth to come into it. We've received a blessing we didn't work for. We've received something that by all rights was not meant to be given for us, although it was, at somebody else's expense. Their stumbling has meant life for us. What do you think their reconciliation will mean? Life from the dead for us. God's eye will from this day forward be upon Israel. He's formed them as a nation and He will return to them and all of Israel will be saved. As we think about our mothers today, I can't help but think of the Jerusalem that's from above that has birthed salvation for all of us, that gave us a promised Son to restore the way and the life to the truth that was already there. And it was given for one reason, the same reason your mother loves you, the same reason that every mother holds a baby in their arms and wants good things, that you might have life and life to the fullest extent. When I look at my children, that's all I want for them. That's all I hope for for them. Generations of people have gone before us, Corinthians says, to serve as examples for us. So we owe a debt to them both. Both our mothers spiritually and our mothers naturally. And I want to honor them both today. When you think about Israel, pray. Give yourself no rest until we see peace there. When you think about your mother, overlook any broken law in her life. Give her the mercy that God has bestowed upon you. Love her for her good intentions in your life, even if the methods were not always perfect. Just like Isaac and Jacob's relationship with their moms. That makes sense, saints? Stand up, let's pray.